In the first lecture, I tried to develop the idea that there is a plausible mechanistic understanding starting with genes for neuropsychiatric disorders. And, in, and yesterday, in the second lecture, I began to develop uh, the notion of the gap between uh, what information processing occurs in the nervous system unconsciously and what is available to consciousness as narrative and, and description. And um, today, through the workshop, we, we, we pressure tested these notions of how good our conscious sense of self and sense of agency and our uh, intuitions in that regard are as uh, proxies for uh, unconscious parallel processing. Yesterday, I focused on um, the, uh, in part on fear circuitry and the example of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, to begin to make some of these points. And today, I want to focus on reward circuitry and therefore the problem of addiction uh, to extend this, uh, this, this sense not only of a that there, are, there is a plausible, if incomplete, mechanistic understanding, at least in OVO, of some of these very important conditions, uh, but also, uh, again, the gap between what is available to us as explanation and narrative and what's happening underneath, and, and at the end, to talk a little bit about what we might do about it, because I do see it as a problem. So this is from last night, and this is just to remind us that um, we have in encoding fear memories, there, are, there is a system that undergirds uh, explicit memory that uh, we, we remember that we had this experience where fear was encoded, but there's also a system that is, uh, that is not available to consciousness that encodes the physiological and behavioral and alerting responses uh, and that we might recognize consciously, but only secondarily, that is we might recognize that our heart is racing, but no amount of introspection allows us to understand you know, how all of this is happening. And secondly, we talked about, I've talked about these lesion experiments conducted by the Damasios, where if you've uh, uh, had a hippocampal lesion because of anoxia, um, you don't remember any fear conditioning episode, uh, but you still have the, these automatic responses. And if you've had uh, an amygdala lesion because of a viral infection, um, you remember that you were in a room where somebody paired a particular visual stimulus with a shock, uh, but, uh, but the visual stimulus doesn't create the kind of conditioning that would elicit these automatic physiological responses. And what I realized today in the workshop, and one of the reasons I showed this again, is that this, uh, this slide doesn't do justice to the extraordinary complexity of the unconscious part of this, which is coordinating you know, our physiology, uh, activating uh, arousal systems in the brain so that in the context of danger, we're awake and vigilant, that is actually uh, 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 altering pain responses because if you uh, happen to be um, uh, in, in a time of dire danger running from something terrible, this isn't the time to respond to a pulled muscle in your calf. And so, but there's an enormous um, uh, amount of processing that's going on, including the encoding of, of new memories. And in some sense, even though I've shown these boxes as the same size, what is available to consciousness is in some sense the tip of the iceberg. And I'll, I'll come back to why that's important later, but, but at a minimum it's because what I've been arguing is that what we can think about, the narratives we can tell about these experiences that may or may not lead to psychopathology like PTSD, is, is a proxy for uh, the massive amount of unconscious parallel processing in our brains and affecting our uh, uh, brain function and our, our physiology. So now let me turn to uh, this new topic of um, addiction and of reward circuitry. And again, 
you'll quickly recognize that uh, for the third day in a row, I woke up and I'm still a neurobiologist. So you'll see some uh, certain number of uh, brain diagrams. So there is an argument which should be a caricature by now historically, but it, but it isn't, which is the question of whether addiction, uh, even addiction to drugs like heroin or cocaine, are conceptualized as uh, a disease uh, by which a lot of people mean, you know, substantial changes in the brain that lead to out of control alterations in behavior or whether addiction is simply some sort of moral laziness or uh, some uh, predilection toward heedless hedonic states, uh, come what may. And this gets reflected uh, in different parts of the world in the way uh, uh, treatment occurs, uh, also in the way that criminal justice occurs. Uh, and it comes down to this question often uh, in addiction, we say that uh, people in the definition, the core definition is people lose control over their drug intake and, and it becomes therefore compulsive. And what that means is actually a little bit more subtle than it sounds, right? Which is uh, that despite negative consequences, so typically for drug addicts, negative consequences could be school failure, trouble at work, your job being at risk, your spouse or partner threatening to leave you because you have uh, narrowed your, your, your focus to obtaining and using drugs or recovering from drugs. Uh, maybe you have a health condition if you, uh, you know, there are these occasional uh, stories that are almost incredible but happen of people who have uh, laryngeal cancer from smoking and continue to smoke through their, their stoma. I mean, this again, this is not ordinary everyday business, but it gives you some sense of the extremes to which this compulsion can go. But compulsion, of course, um, as we'll come back to, doesn't mean uh, all you do every minute is use drugs. Actually, there are times when you know you you can you, you can desist or or stave it off. Uh, but over time, um, uh, people just in, feel intensely that they need to go back and 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 take drugs. And I think partly the the fact that compulsion is uh, not uniform over time. If, fools people into thinking that individuals actually can control these urges uh, when in fact uh, people can control motor tics uh, for some period of time. People with Tourette's syndrome can control their verbal tics over some period of time, but ultimately a, a pressure that people can, cannot really give utterance to because again, these are unconscious uh, or not, the, the systems controlling these things are not available to consciousness. I mean, so they make a conscious effort, but ultimately this pressure builds up and a motor tick occurs or people relapse to drug use. Now, this issue of compulsion has gotten, in some sense, more acute as so-called behavioral addictions have begun to join drug addiction in various psychiatric diagnostic systems. So the, uh, um, the DSM-5 now has uh, compulsive gambling in the same chapter as drug addiction. And while I don't think it's going to happen for the uh, International Classification of Diseases at the World Health Organization, there was uh, some political pressure to include internet addiction from the governments of Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan because so many young people uh, literally for all the world look like they have lost control over their ability to be gaming on the internet or being in, in pachinko parlors. And uh, it was felt, and we, we can come back to what kind of evidence would lead you to, to, to put internet addiction in with, uh, with, uh, with drugs. Uh, maybe we can discuss that in the questions, but, but, but that, that so far has been resisted. But the idea that there are behaviors as opposed to drugs that can um, look for all the world clinically like drug addiction um, sort of ups the ante with respect to what we consider compulsive and out of control. And I think the question uh, that gets asked is, now really, how is it possible 
for a person to lose control over a complex series of voluntary acts, right? So meaning, right, I get money to buy heroin, perhaps by committing a crime. Uh, I then go out and find the drug dealer. Uh, and then I go through this ritual of uh, finding a vein, if I have any left, and putting on a tourniquet and heating the heroin in a, in a, in a spoon and drawing it up in a needle and injecting it. A whole series of, uh, of voluntary acts. And when I say I've lost control, this has become compulsive, what could that possibly mean? And why can't I uh, exercise uh, free won't as opposed to free will at some time in that process? So another way of, uh, of putting it is uh, how is it, so this is an opium poppy, you know, how is it that uh, plant extract can seem to usurp control over human behavior? All right, so the first thing is, I think it's really important to start here. You know, we have, there are animal models of reward circuits which come across as universal, and it makes it sound like if, if you know, we give you enough heroin or cocaine over time, everybody will become an addict. And of course, we know that's not true. Uh, like all things, um, these drugs have uh, different kind of stickiness in different human beings according to certain risk factors. So uh, the, the, the first thing is that um, uh, and, and, and it, it increases the this question about what do we mean by compulsion, there's an observation that some people appear addicted, they act for all the world addicted and compulsive in a certain context, and then they leave that context and, and the drug abuse the, stops. So during the Vietnam War, uh, the US soldiers who were there uh, be, were uh, exposed to very cheap, very pure heroin. They were often not very happy to be where they were and they had this peculiar mixture of you know, intense stress and fear and then periods of doing nothing and uh, the heroin use was, was rampant. And um, there was a real concern as the war came to its very uh, uh, nasty, untidy conclusion with people you know, uh, uh, exiting uh, willy-nilly the, the, the Nixon administration, remember the Nixon administration, uh, actually was very worried that these soldiers returning home would become vectors for, uh, for heroin addiction. And there were some plans on the table to build sort of concentration camps to you know, keep these guys uh, um, away from uh, populations, but fortunately no one was competent enough to uh, to actually execute on this horrible plan and these soldiers returned to their communities where lo and behold, uh, except for about 5% of them, they all just stopped using heroin. And the ones who continued to use were the ones either who had a drug problem before they left or the ones who returned to neighborhoods where drugs were rampant and readily available. So this, this, is, this is a sort of a fact that we have to think about which is how what we're gonna talk about is a metaphorically, this is a, a psychiatric, as a brain disease that becomes compulsive, is in this peculiar way context dependent, which goes to issues around conditioning. We'll come back to that. But, but in terms of people who, who try drugs, who get uh, stuck, um, we, we, we know that there are genetic risk factors. Now, unlike what I talked to you about two days ago about schizophrenia and autism, no one has found such genes, uh, but the genetic influence is significant based on the concordance of monozygotic twins compared with dizygotic twins, but also interestingly, adoption studies. So in the uh, 60s and 70s, um, sci uh, researchers in the several Scandinavian countries and also in the, in the US uh, were able to do adoption studies because often you know, kids born in families with severe alcoholism often, you know, because of the chaos, might have an increased risk of being put up for adoption. And uh, they set out to prove that alcoholism related to your environment, to your adoptive family. And the shocking result that, uh, that, that they found universally was that actually uh, the risk of alcoholism tracked your biological family, not your adoptive family. And indeed, for some you know, based on interviews afterwards, for some 
kids from uh, teetotaling families or non-alcoholic families who are adopted into, you know, n no one sent kids on purpose to an alcoholic family, but sometimes the, the uh, welfare authorities didn't know it. Uh, those kids had a particular revulsion. You know, they, the, the alcohol just didn't seem foreign to them. So th this, was, this was rather shocking, but, um, but um, by and large, um, the uh, uh, adoption studies suggest that, that there are genetic risk factors. Now, one other finding, uh, which is just amazingly amusing to tell you, not necessarily a critical part of the study, is somebody did a genetic study of risk factors for lung cancer. Uh, and what came out of this these genes are two of the nicotinic receptors, the ones that are influenced by tobacco, uh, which tells you also how careful you have to be about uh, interpreting genetics. So actually, uh, the leading genetic risk factors for uh, lung cancer turned out to be variants of the receptors by which people get hooked on smoking. Um, but, it, but again, this uh, sort of very interesting about risk factors. Um, and then um, having certain psychiatric disorders is also a risk factor. People with bipolar disorder, more when they're manic and uh, have impulse controls problems. People with untreated ADHD, not treated ADHD. People with chronic pain. And then another risk factor is social. Uh, and it's really quite clear that communities where drugs are available and accepted, and especially communities with low resources, uh, clearly increase the, uh, the risk uh, of drug addiction, although you know, people at all places in the socioeconomic scale uh, are vulnerable. Okay. So the biological story is really very old. In the 1950s, there was this classic, very Skinnerian experiment done by uh, Olds and Milner in, uh, in Canada, uh, where uh, basically the experiment was to uh, put an electrode in different places in the brain and ask whether there were any locations of the electrode where a rat would work for electrical stimulation. So it would push the lever, it would get electrical stimulation. And lo and behold, uh, you know, so most parts of the brain were neutral. I would presume, I, I haven't, the papers didn't say it, but some places might be aversive, you know, right, you might have it in the amygdala. But there were a few locations in the brain where the, the, the uh, rat would just push the lever to exhaustion thousands of times. Probably the graduate students were also exhausted because there were no computers, probably just writing down you know, the numbers. Uh, and if the rodents survived you know, uh, after keeling over, it would get up and start pressing the lever again. And it turned out, now this is a human brain, not a rodent brain, that uh, the, uh, the, the, the places where the electrodes were having their greatest effect were in something called the medial forebrain bundle, but a group of axons that were carrying signals from dopamine neurons into the forebrain. Uh, and this got, went by uh, the very misleading name initially, the pleasure centers and so forth. But it turns out to be much more interesting and important to this story about uh, conscious versus unconscious uh, uh, processing. If this, if simply, uh, uh, if, if, if all this story was about was, you know, stimulating some circuit, feeling intense euphoria, liking it, and just saying, this, now I know what I want to do with my life, I want to press this lever, or I want to take uh, heroin, I wouldn't have very much of a, of a story to tell you, but it turns out to be much more interesting. So it turned out that this, uh, this was uh, not so much a pleasure center, but was the first insight into uh, reward circuitry. Um, and, you know, last night we talked about uh, fear circuits, which, which are very much survival circuits because they uh, incentivize uh, uh, an escape from danger. So, uh, on, but on the other hand, um, evolution, again, I shouldn't personify it too much, sound like a teleologist, but evolution, you know, had to be concerned that or free living organisms got um, food, water, um, for th that if their social, that social interactions are rewarding, safety, and of course, um, uh, met the uh, reproductive needs, uh, that had to be rewarding as well, uh, or, other, or otherwise, uh, 
um, the yeast would have inherited the earth. We would all be budding, you know, if, uh, if uh, reproductive, uh, meeting reproductive needs weren't rewarding. Um, so stimulating this reward circuitry facilitates approach behaviors for things that meet homeostatic needs uh, and, and, and facilitates, in most species, very stereotypic consumatory behaviors. There's, there's a, there, there, these are kind of um, uh, very deeply ingrained about how an animal eats and how it has sex and so forth. Um, and, uh, but interestingly, very importantly, just as we talked about yesterday, and I just showed you again how um, a, any stimulus or cue that, that predicts, reliably predicts danger, the cue itself becomes imbued, unless you have an amygdala lesion, right, with, with uh, sort of uh, salience and, 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 and starts to prepare you for escape behaviors. So uh, cues that are associated reliably with rewards um, uh, in, have an incentive salience and they incentivize approach behaviors. And in fact, this, this really was the experiment that Pavlov did with his dogs, where uh, his bell predicted uh, palatable food, some sort of meat, and the dogs, uh, not, they, they approached it and they began to salivate and they're digestive juices got going. Actually, it's often forgotten that Pavlov was a digestive physiologist. He was really interested in, uh, in uh, their uh, enzymes and so forth. Um, so, th but this is really not much different from, from Pavlov's bell. Um, but what's important again is that um, while Pavlov's bell or some drug-associated cue or reward-associated cue gets imbued with motivational salience, uh, it's not experienced it as itself as rewarding, right? This is something, this kind of conditioning and preparedness is encoded in these unconscious uh, reward systems just as um, the physiological and alerting and behavioral aspects of fear are encoded in, um, again, parallel processing, unconscious, um, uh, fear circuitry. And the other thing that these circuits do is, uh, I'm not telling you everything they do just yet, is that they, they consolidate relative valuation. Uh, and this, this occurs uh, to some degree uh, between reward circuitry and the orbital prefrontal cortex, where um, one has sort of a hierarchy to some degree of you know, what is better than what and how I'm gonna make choices in life. And again, we can't, we, we might remember that, to take a silly example, we might remember that when I go to my favorite restaurant, I always get the, you know, the tuna and I always think maybe the ham would be good, but I always somehow get the tuna. We, we can have these, you know, the, these sort of conscious narratives, but you know, the, the, the actual va valuations, uh, again, uh, as they're encoded in the brain and which apply to decision making are not something we can introspect and, 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 and understand. Now the key, I think as is widely known, the key neurotransmitter that is required for reward circuits is, is dopamine. And we know this because we can measure in response to rewards or in terms of stimuli that are associated with rewards, we can, we can measure dopamine release in the forebrain of experimental animals, uh, or we can, if we block dopamine release by killing dopamine neurons or, or depleting dopamine or blocking dopamine receptors, um, animals or humans uh, will not um, Will, will not experience rewards. And what you see if you block dopamine often in an animal, that, a dopamine receptor in an animal that is uh, used to pushing a lever for, let's say, an injection of cocaine, actually what happens is first the animal presses the lever more in general, like this damn thing is broken, what's happening, because their dopamine receptors are not working, and then ultimately the behavior extinguishes. Interestingly, we give humans with psychosis, dopamine blockers, for, for at least one of the two dopamine receptors, dopamine D2 receptors, and um, this 
this partial blockade of reward circuits probably creates, uh, contributes to anhedonic states in people on these drugs. People don't like these drugs. We often say, you know, well, you know, this person um, stopped his drugs as if this is a terrible moral failing, even though they had schizophrenia, uh, without recognizing that the, the drugs are, uh, besides any side effects, are really quite deadening and people don't like them. And in fact, uh, there's a very high likelihood of uh, illicit drug use for people on these, almost trying to balance, uh, uh, rebalance their hedonic state. Okay, so then this is the nastiest slide in the, in the talk, but it's important because this, this really goes to, uh, again, it's gonna help us talk about the difference between um, what's happening in our brains and, 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 and what we, are, we have access to and what our narratives are. And so I've already said that, um, uh, or implied that dopamine is not the, the, the job of dopamine in the brain is not to create a sense of euphoria. Um, I mean, there are, there are mechanisms to uh, create, you know, feeling really good, whether it's from uh, drugs or any other natural reward. Um, um, and that has probably to do with endogenous opioids and glutamate circuits, but, um, but, uh, but dopamine has a different view. So, uh, Wolfram Schultz, who actually uh, uh, did a lot of this work when he was uh, in Germany and then moved to the University of Cambridge, uh, did uh, experiments which uh, I guess would be very controversial in Great Britain, but what he did is he was recording from the dopamine neurons of a monkey that was uh, sitting, um, it, was, it was trained, it was awake, and it was sitting in a chair, and it, it learned to when a little door opened, it would, it would get a sweet syrup that it could drink and that it found very rewarding. And then, then he did very much a Pavlovian conditioning experiment where uh, a light would go off and that would signal that the door would open. But recording from the dopamine neurons, I don't know if you can see this raster plot, but there's a little bar graph up here. Uh, the story goes like this. So here is a naive monkey. He hasn't been conditioned, ha you know, hasn't met Pavlov yet. And, and his dopamine neurons have a baseline firing rate, slow, you know, baseline firing. And then the, then the door opens, R is the reward, and the syrup comes out and the dopamine neurons fire faster. Okay, well, that could actually still be the internal representation of happiness or euphoria. We don't really know what that means. But in the next experiment, uh, now the monkey's met Pavlov, Wolfram Schultz in the form of Pavlov, and he learns that a light predicts the reward, and now the condition stimulus, the light comes on, and look at what happens. The uh, dopamine neurons actually fire uh, when the light comes on, and then if the reward, if the syrup is exactly as the monkey always expects, there's actually no change in dopamine neuron firing when he gets to consume the syrup. And I, did, I, I don't, don't want to show you lots and lots of this kind of data, but, but if you then have a tone that predicts the light, that predicts the reward, what happens is that the firing of the dopamine neurons moves back to the earliest reliable predictor of reward. Okay, so uh, and you can go several steps farther back. But if the reward is exactly as expected, you get no firing. Now, if you have this reliable predictor of reward and, and the dopamine neurons fire, and then the reward is an extra sweet syrup or a little extra syrup, then the dopamine neurons actually would fire more. And then if you, uh, if, if Dr. Pavlov is being a bit of a trickster, and you have the light, the conditioned stimulus, and the reward, the door doesn't open and the reward is omitted, the dopamine neurons pause. So uh, through a number of really interesting computational models, it was recognized that, um, that there was a pattern to this that could be interpreted, which is, as I've already suggested, um, that Dopamine neurons 
respond to the first reliable predictor of reward, and they pause when reward is expected and doesn't occur. And um, one way of interpreting this without getting too technical is to say, if the world is better than expected, um, dopamine neurons fire. Um, and the reason they fire when they get the first reliable predictor of reward is they didn't know was coming, right? But then when the predictor comes, the dopamine neurons fire and because now they're expecting the world to be better, right? They're going to get this reward. And if the world is just as expected, they just fire at their normal rate. And if the world is worse than, respect, uh, than expected, uh, the dopamine neurons pause. And the notion is that this is not a signal of euphoria. That is, you know, the monkey doesn't particularly get euphoric when the light comes on, might have some anticipation, but rather it is a, a learning signal. It is shaping, it's basically saying to the monkey, or, so this, you just saw this signal, um, uh, was there something that would have predicted this so I can more reliably get reward? It's basically shaping behavior for the, for the monkey, or this is true in rats, it's true in us, to maximize their future rewards. It's, it's, it's basically creating a kind of plasticity. And in humans with imaging, there are a number of studies like this. Uh, this is very much like uh, the, the Schultz experiments. So thirst, people were, were made thirsty and they were expected to, uh, they, they learned to expect uh, liquid at a fixed interval after a light signal and uh, with an unexpected reward when you know that is the, the either getting the water without a signal uh, the, the or or seeing the signal they get this increase in activity in vta or these dopamine neurons and uh, uh, if the reward is just as expected there's less signal and if the reward is expected and not received they have decreased activity so this seems to be it's got to be more complicated than this, but, but, but you, you have a sense that this is what, um, what dopamine is doing. And, of course, dopamine is, as I said, it, the story is more complicated. So dopamine neurons, uh, the ones that are affected, are sitting in the brain, some in the midbrain, and they project throughout the brain, and they, so they coordinate this reward learning, this reward seeking, uh, through various aspects of the brain. Uh, we think that the association of a signal with reward that is painting a, a stimulus with incentive salience occurs in what's called the nucleus accumbens. Um, the uh, uh, orbital prefrontal cortex has to do with valuation. Um, and then uh, the other thing that happens is, uh, is uh, that motor programs for seeking and consuming reward also get, uh, get consolidated. And I think you don't really need this uh, uh, molecular picture. I'll be really very fast. So this is just a rat cortex. And in the cortex, there's a picture of how the world is, you know, uh, maybe for a rat, it's, you know, I'm in my shoebox cage and with this nice bedding that I've peed on that smells really good and so forth. And then, you know, if they get a uh, IV injection of cocaine, that's going to re release dopamine. And that interacts, I'm not going to go into much detail, uh, on these, uh, we saw some synaptic spines yesterday. They inter interact on the head and neck of synaptic spines. And the dopamine helps consolidate. It's, it's sort of like, okay, um, Something good just happened. Let's, let's really remember this picture of the world, okay? And, and intuitively, you know, all day long, you are exposed to more sensory stimuli than you're gonna pay attention to, many, many more than you're gonna remember. And, and the things you choose to attend to and the things you choose to remember are things that are somehow salient, right? And so in, the, in this regard, the, in, in many, many circuits around the brain, what, what, what dopamine release is doing is it's, it's sort of fixing the picture of the world at the time that reward was predicted or reward was received. And, uh, and, and those things get encoded uh, deeply in, in all of these circuits. And I think you can begin to see maybe how an addicted person, um, uh, if, if 
drugs of abuse or releasing dopamine, you know, might, might start to have certain behavioral patterns and desires uh, consolidated. And indeed, that's what happens. So addictive drugs are, are sort of like Trojan horses. That is, they look enough like dopamine or like other molecules that release dopamine that they fool the brain. So here's dopamine, here's amphetamine. Um, when dopamine acts in the nervous system, its action is terminated by a, a protein that, that sucks the extra dopamine out of synapses. Turns out amphetamine binds very nicely to that same protein, it, it fools it, and actually it even enters the cell and causes more dopamine release. It's very, very tricky, but it's, it's basically, literally, uh, a Trojan horse. And it's, it's sort of interesting that humans discovered these, these substances um, probably willy-nilly, you know, uh, as, uh, as our forebears were scouring the earth for good things to eat. Um, you know, they discovered uh, the coca leaf in South America, and they discovered cannabis, and they learned how to ferment uh, grains, uh, and they discovered the opium poppy, uh, which comes back to the, to, you know, how is it that a plant product has this effect on human behavior? Um, or trying to get the attention of uh, Harvard medical students, I sometimes would ask them, you know, why does the brain prefer opium to broccoli? Um, but the, the, the issue is that each of these plant products, natural plant products, has a molecule in it that, that is literally a Trojan horse that interacts with the brain in a way that uh, releases dopamine. Now, drug addiction is very powerful and it can narrow people's interests so that, you know, people give up, you know, palatable foods and sex and all kinds of uh, uh, more subtle life rewards uh, in favor of drugs, and, um, and again, this gets to the, the subtlety of what dopamine uh, is doing. So these Trojan horses cause dopamine release directly. That is, they, they literally, they interact with transporters and receptors, and they, whatever else happens, they release dopamine. Um, so whenever you take one of these drugs, you, your brain is getting the signal, the world is better than expected. So now let's, um, and the, the other thing is, if something is awful, uh, because the dope, they're, they're releasing dopamine, the pauses, the dopamine neuron pauses are occluded, they're hidden. So now, um, let's think about this. Um, I don't know uh, if anybody here uh, smokes cigarettes, but when people first start smoking cigarettes, uh, it's pretty aversive, right? You cough, you choke. Um, nothing, nothing really fun about it. People usually get through it with the help of their, with their friendly, with their peers, right? Um, so why, and, and, and smoking cigarettes, by the way, doesn't produce any particular euphoria, right? So why do people keep smoking and get hooked? Um, and I think this is a really interesting example because again, unlike heroin, unlike cocaine, you really are not getting this kind of, uh, you know, intense euphoric feeling. And it's because by binding to nicotinic receptors indirectly, tobacco is causing dopamine release. And so even while you're coughing and choking, your brain is getting the signal, um, the world is better than expected. This is important stuff. This is survival. Learn this. Let's do more of this. Right? And again, this is all... Um, None of this is available to introspection. None of this makes, makes any sense. This has nothing to do with the subjective experience. I think we, you know, those of us who've been through medical training even, you know, uh, have been in emergency departments and seen people come in uh, who are alcoholic and who uh, will, late in the course of their alcoholism, they'll uh, have a drink, and, but they have, have uh, uh, liver disease or erosions in their in their stomach and and they'll drink and the first thing they'll do is vomit you know sometimes quite dramatically or some people will drink and um, and will have an exacerbation of depression and feel suicidal 
and you'll say, this is so aversive, finally they're going to see the light and stop. Uh, but instead, next day they're back drinking again. And again, alcohol is, is e even while they're you know, throwing up, even while they're miserable, this other part of their brain is getting this signal, uh, this world's better than expected. This is for your survival. Learn this, do this, right? So, so look, the reason I'm, you, we're gonna go on, but the reason I'm giving you this example, again, is to show, at least in part, the gap between conscious motives, conscious lived experience, even hedonic state, and what is maintaining these apparently self-destructive behaviors? I mean, that's, 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 that's really the, 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 the picture I'm trying to draw here. And, uh, you know, the other thing is just the automatic behaviors that develop in response to rewards, which, again, are completely opaque to consciousness. So uh, uh, Peter Shizgal, who's at uh, Concordia University of Montreal, and I wrote a chapter together for a uh, Candel textbook. And uh, I, I was writing about drug addiction, and he was writing about natural rewards. Uh, and he was talking, and he took this example of a cheetah hunting, nice example, uh, where, um, but if you think about it, where if you're going to catch an antelope and, and survive, you need the food. And uh, you know you you can't too many failed hunting expeditions, and you're going to starve. You're going to not have enough water to drink. You're going to become dehydrated. And so, uh, at the first cue that the prey is around, whether it's smell or rustling or movement, you know the the, the cheetah goes into a extremely efficient stereotyped set of movements and you know, very often succeeds in its hunt. This isn't the time to innovate, right? It isn't the time to you know, try out a new hunting technology technique, right? It's, 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 it's just maximum efficiency, right? And, and the same thing happens, um, you know, we humans are a little bit less stereotypic, but basically uh, the same thing, this kind of automatic behaviors for obtaining rewards, um, uh, with, with a certain amount of flexibility occurs in, in, in humans. And so um, you will often, again, you know, uh, see people who absolutely swear they're going to give up smoking and they're, or they're going to give up alcohol. They've absolutely sworn, they've just come back from their Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or their, or their confrontation with their spouse. Uh, over alcohol, say, and literally while they're saying about how they're going to stop, they're unscrewing a bottle, right? And, and it's and and it it's, it sounds odd, but you know we we're very well aware that these things happen. And again, it shows this sort of disjunction between here maybe conscious desire and these automatic behaviors that dopamine has absolutely been, you know, it's again more common, but dopamine is just absolutely involved in making these things automatic. So, so now, this may make no intuitive sense to you, so I'm going to tell you two other things. The first is that uh, you know that, uh, you know, I think everybody here is aware of Parkinson's disease. So in Parkinson's disease, um, uh, not the, these precise dopamine neurons, but their next door neighbor neurons in the substantia nigra die, and the symptoms that people have are symptoms, uh, many symptoms, but they're symptoms of, of motor behavior. They have trouble initiating movements. They have trouble uh, with, um, people develop motor tremors, but, but it's really, they have trouble with gait. So dopamine, among its many other roles, is involved in uh, coordinating motor behavior. Um, so that's on the negative side. On the positive side, if you think about automatic behaviors, um, you know, we all have lots of automatic behaviors or habits, right? So uh, if you think of, um, um, if maybe some of you um, have been athletes and you've learned a particular routine um, 
or, or a particular dance or a particular um, playing a musical instrument. Um, after you've learned it, after you've solidified the, the, the routine, it becomes absolutely automatic. And I think you know that when you're in the middle of some performance, um, if you actually think about it, um, your performance degrades because you're moving from these automatic, automatized, automatic behaviors to, you know, you're, you're letting your cerebral cortex get too much involved, you become clumsy. If you're in some sort of, if you're uh, uh, dancing or playing an instrument and you, you slip, you make a mistake, you fall, what you have got to do is get back up and get right back into your routine and don't think, right? And, and, and things return to smooth movements. Well, you know, however we, the, the reward system works in solidifying these habits, these automatic, very efficient behaviors, which comes from, again, this, these underlying survival circuits, the same thing happens for obtaining and using drugs. Now, people do not become zombies. Right? So let's say you've gone out to uh, score some drugs and your, uh, your friendly salesperson is usually right on this corner, but something has happened. Um, well, you know, you, people don't, and th this is what's really confusing about volition, people don't walk up to the police officer and say, I would like to, you know, to buy some heroin. Um, people can suppress it, right, for, at least for some time. Um, and, um, and, and again, this is, this is misinterpreted to say that uh, because they can suppress these behaviors after having, you know, after running into a policeman, that these are under easy voluntary control. But actually, uh, um, what, there have been a number of really nice studies that if people, if it's time for your next dose, you get interoceptive signal, signals in your body, uh, cues, uh, as long as people are making good progress toward obtaining drugs, uh, it's, it's very smooth and automatic. When people have what they describe as intense drug craving, it's when this pursuit, this automatic pursuit of drugs is interrupted, like in this case, you know, these, by these friendly officers, or actually when people make a conscious effort to stop using. Uh, that's, you know, the time has passed when they should have had their next drink, their next cigarette, their next dose. Worse, remember Pavlovian conditioning, if there's some cue, if there's some reminder that it was time for a drug, then there's, there's this intense subjective craving and need and so forth that over time people have trouble resisting. So there's automatized uh, drug seeking, and then when that's interrupted, there's, there's craving. And then the other thing that happens with chronic drug use is, uh, this is a PET scan from Norvolkov, um, just comparing a, you know, a, a healthy person and a cocaine abuser, I'm afraid this got a little bit cut off, but basically there seems to be less activity, less metabolic activity in parts of the prefrontal cortex which were involved with cognitive control. Okay, all right, so what I've tried to do here is to develop a story that explains how um, people might experiment with drugs, you know, under conscious control with, with friends, but then for those people who are vulnerable by reasons of genes and environment and social setting and so forth, um, uh, somehow the drugs become sticky and through dopamine release uh, the brain gets coordinated to turn these drugs into the center of their lives right by hijacking or usurping these survival circuits and their ability to suppress it the prefrontal cortex the ability to exert top-down control seems to for whatever reason to get impaired so How do, how do we interpret this? So, um, well, first of all, cognitive control in the prefrontal cortex. This is, a, this is the uh, reconstruction of uh, Phineas Gage. Something many of you probably know about Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage was a uh, young, um, very uh, industrious, very responsible railway worker, so industrious. He was made a foreman at a young age, and in 1848, while working 
on the Burlington and Northern Railroad in Vermont in uh, the US. Uh, uh, he had a bit of an accident. The, they were blasting through some hills and it was somebody's job to drill a hole and put in gunpowder and then they were supposed to put sand on top of that and he, as the foreman, had a tamping bar and he would tamp down the gunpowder and, uh, and uh, once he, he must have been distracted and uh, he, he, I guess the sand hadn't covered the gunpowder and he hit the rock and there was a spark and the gunpowder blew up and this tamping bar was blown through his eye uh, and through his medial prefrontal cortex and clear through his brain and landed somewhere and he was dazed, he fell down and shockingly he survived. He ultimately got up, it must have cauterized the wound, it didn't get infected, um, but Gage, as his uh, comrades said, was no longer Gage. Instead of being responsible, he couldn't keep appointments, he couldn't keep commitments, he became profane, he couldn't hold down a job. And uh, this was uh, some of the early evidence. People said, my God, the moral sense has something to do with the brain. Um, but this, he, he became sort of the paradigmatic patient with a prefrontal cortical lesion who just lost the ability to plan and, and to uh, cause his behavior to be aligned with his rational goals. But this is a serious fixed lesion and there was nothing Gage can do about it. I, I, the reason I show this is because people who are addicted to drugs are much more variable, much more confusing, right? If, 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 uh, if people who uh, ended up in trouble in their jobs or their marriages or ended up in court with drugs, showed up and, and they metaphorically had a bar sticking through their prefrontal cortex, uh, we might be a lot more sympathetic. So to, to sort of summarize the situation, people who are addicted to drugs actually over time appear to be in very different states that wax and wane and their ability to control their behavior changes with time. So obviously, right after somebody's had a big drink or heroin or something, they're intoxicated and it's no time to reason with them. Um, at some period after that, they're calm, they appear to, be, appear to be rational. And then if they wait too long, they may be withdrawing from the drug. Uh, they may see drug-associated cues. This is, you know, the Pavlovian, see the friends with whom you shoot up or smell a crack pipe and they start drug-seeking, this is their accumbens lighting up or, or craving. And certainly if they can't obtain drugs because they've run into a policeman or they're trying to cut down, um, they, um, they, that, that's when drug craving is most intense. So the problem, in, again, in dealing with people who are addicted is often in this state, you know, they seem rational and you can talk to them about getting treatment in the psychiatrist or entering a rehab or they can be negotiating with a judge if they've uh, committed uh, some, some crime. Um, but given the way their brains have been altered, um, they're going to enter these other much less tractable states. And um, so one, one question in the practice of psychiatry or anything else is asking whether when people are in this sort of calm, most rational state, you know, not cued, not withdrawing, um, can they bind their future self? Can they sign a contract? Can they enter a rehab? Can they do a deal? Um, and of course, this also depends on the laws, right? They can sign out as soon as they want to in, under most circumstances. Um, this is, uh, you know, the, my metaphor for this is Odysseus having himself tied to the mast while listening to the sirens. Um, maybe they, uh, if they are in trouble with the law, they can even, the judge can say, you can either go to prison or we'll give you involuntary treatment. But what I, I think this, the story illustrates is the fact that here's, let's call drug addiction a psychiatric disorder because I think the brain is very much changed in a vulnerable person and they engage in all kinds of 
maladaptive behaviors, hurtful to themselves, hurtful to others, terrible other health consequences and life consequences. Um, and we, even phys often physicians, right, will attribute to them a level of control over their behavior, a level of insight uh, that really is not available to them. Uh, you can ask them, you know, what drove you to drink? What, how did you get addicted? And people, you know, invariably will tell you a story. You know, uh, they'll say, well, you know, my spouse doesn't appreciate me and it's, I'm really stressed out and we're behind on the rent or whatever, right? Why did you relapse? Um, well, again, people will give you a narrative. But underneath it, you know, the brain mechanisms have, I think, I mean, I've given you this whole story, which I hope, you know, is, is credible. Um, these Trojan horses have initiated brain mechanisms that have really hijacked voluntary control of behavior. And I showed you the comparison to Phineas Gage, because it's not so simple, right? It's not all or nothing. If it was all or nothing, it wouldn't be confusing, right? But people over time simply cannot Res with the right stimuli, with the right interoceptive cues, cannot resist taking drugs again. And they don't understand it. You know, at their times of calm, they, they will, you know, they, they can recognize all of the trouble at a certain point and say they want to quit. And their spouse or their boss sort of says, you know, we've reasoned with you or a judge has reasoned with, with people. Um, and I think this this is, in many ways, the best example we have of the disjunction between, in this case, maladaptively driven, but between, again, unconscious processes that are coordinating in a powerful way human behavior, human self-concept, and what is available to this person to tell their story or to tell their narrative. And worse yet, you know, they fool clinicians, you know, about their willingness to get better and so forth. And, um, and, and this is this interesting gap, this very important gap that I've been talking about um, between these underlying unconscious neural mechanisms and, you know, our narrative and, and, and self-concept. And what I've said before, and so now those of you who are not at the workshop would not know this, but I've had the word veridical just beaten out of me, you know. Um, and they said, kind of be honest. What, what you mean is that, you know, th that these conscious representations are false. And I've tried to hedge and say, well, they're proxies for what's going on underneath. But they're, they're indirect inferences that come not from introspection into these neural processes, but into sort of what's happening to the person and how they feel. And uh, so, so I would, I, I've been coached to say they, they were incomplete, but they're not just incomplete. I mean, this consciousness at some level is, is a bit of a spin doctor. Uh, it, 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 in something, it's confabulating in these cases. It's creating reasons <laughs> that sound perfectly explanatory, but they're not real and not about what's going on underneath. And um, to extend this, you know, to less dramatic states than addiction, you know, I think it's emblematic of this, this, this real gap between what is available to introspection and our narratives and unconscious uh, decision-making um, mechanisms um, and um, and uh, I think, you know, in the world we live fine with our reasons and our explanations, but I think in the clinical, in, in, in the clinical realm and also in criminal justice system, this is where the rubber hits the road and this is where these sort of illness narratives and recovery narratives and their, their gap between that and, you know, what you know, genes and environment and experience and drugs have created in terms of decision-making mechanisms create a lot of trouble. And in truth, even in, in ordinary life, right, we, we, we've learned from Kahneman and Tversky and others that 
you know, the way our consciousness has, the way, the way we behave uh, is just riddled with certain almost stereotypic uh, cognitive distortions. And so I think the answer, you know, is not to despair, but just as, you know, I, this, this uh, in some sense, U Ulysses here, or Odysseus, had a cognitive, more than a cognitive, he was tied, but a cognitive prosthesis, so he didn't dive in and, you know, uh, die trying to pursue the sirens, and just as uh, maybe an addicted person might find some way to bind his future self in a recovery program, I think we, we but especially in these, in these clinical encounters where uh, we, we, we tend to, to believe, either as patients or physicians, some of these compelling narratives of illness, we need to think about some, some corrective, some cognitive prostheses of our own, where we sort of understand how we are, uh, you know, if we're, the, if we're in, in, in a patient role or a supplicant role or anything like that, we, we will act in a way to put ourselves in the best light, but also if we're physicians, we might act in certain ways that are irrational to uh, show our authority or to show that we're good doctors or show that we care. And, and, but I think we can, we can come up with very good ways and we can train each other to have good ways to minimize the, 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 the negative effects of these gaps between narratives and between unconscious decision making. Thank you very much.